Hello and welcome to the University of Bath Thought Train podcast. I'm your host, Sam Bradley. Today we're talking international law and international justice with Dr. Brett Edwards and Dr. Mattia Cacciatore from the Department of Politics, Language and International Studies. First of all, um, Donald Trump has been making waves again with his, uh, his approach to international diplomacy. I'd love to get your thoughts on that. Maybe if we come to you first, Mattia. What do you make of his approach to international diplomacy? Well, uh, it's very hard to say because there's one thing that we hate in international relations is uh, not being able to predict somebody's actions. So when you speak with you know political scientists and international relations scholars, uh, the worst thing that can came up can, that can come up is uh, surprise technically, and um, Donald Trump is a, is a man of surprise. Uh, he, he has been able to overturn long-standing diplomatic pro, uh, policies by uh, using Twitter, using um, non-conventional means of diplomacy. In the specific case of nowadays, his approach to international law is not actually that different from long-standing isolationist uh, approaches mm. to international diplomacy that the U.S. has constantly uh, taken up throughout its entire history. Um, so on that side, it's not a surprise. It's more surprising the ways in which he's doing so, which is much more celebrity-like mm -hmm. than uh, politician-like. What do you think, no, I think that's right. I think he has a very specific style which confuses people. And I think in particular it's made it very difficult to distinguish tactical acts from kind of broader strategic changes that he's, he's making in his policy. Um, and of course I think, the, as, as ever with these things, the, the past six months is the time where people have most wanted to really understand what's happening and what Trump's doing, but that's actually been the worst time <laughs> to be making those sorts of judgments because it's just so chaotic. I mean, if we look at what happened in, in Syria, for example, um, when he engaged in the, um, the, the, the airstrikes, mm -hmm. this was in last April, for a short while people were saying this represents a huge shift and he's going to change his engagement in Syria and he was a hawk all along. And in fact, we've actually seen relatively a continuation of his policy in, in that region. And, and in many areas, he seems to have kind of promised things, not yeah. always wise things, but things nonetheless. And he, generally speaking, tends to have fulfilled those promises. Yeah, one, th one thing that I would add is also the fact that there's uh, constantly be a huge problem in international politics, which is um, the lack of a real supranational government, the lack of a world government. So diplomacy is essential to achieve political goals at the international level. And diplomacy also entails uh, the maintaining of amicable relationships mm. among states. And Trump seems to have the particular and peculiar ability of antagonizing virtually everybody he speaks to. Uh, and that is a huge problem for diplomacy itself. No, I, I think that's right. And I think that's what gets some people worried. I mean, it's, it's clear that the role of the US is, is, is changing at the international level. And in particular, they're kind of moving away in some respects from kind of the traditional policy tools of kind of world governance, so working through UN organisations and those sorts of things. And it's clear, of course, that, you know, the US aren't going to roll back on many treaties. They're of great value to the US's security and competitiveness. Um, but at the same time, it is kind of uh, increasingly... Uh, there's increasing tensions where, on one hand, you have the US arguing to protect the kind of the, the rule of international law and demonising other states for behaving in certain ways, and then in the next breath doing things which apparently 
are you know the front to international law. So here we've seen, for example, in relation to the Israel issue, we've seen kind of the UN pushing back and saying, well, you know, we have we have processes we've been working through, mm-hmm. and of course we've seen the UK obviously express a similar position. And on on very similar lines, I mean, this speaks to. Uh, much broader trends in international politics that many people refer to as uh, a relative decline of uh, American hegemony. In the last five to six years, we have seen, um, we have noticed a a relative decline of American hegemony at the international level. Now, that brings the question of whether or not Trump is the most adequate political face to be able to manage uh, on one side, the decline of the U.S., and on the other, the rising import, the renewed rise of Russia, and the rising importance uh, of China, for instance. Because, to be completely frank, uh, China right now is beating the U.S. at its own game, which is the capitalist game. Mm. So China's GDP is growing much faster than the U.S. GDP, which means that a long-standing narrative that. Um, capitalist values and democratic values went hand in hand is currently being challenged by the fact that a uh, non-democratic government in its most um, technical uh, connotation is beating the US at the capitalist game and Trump has to face all these dilemmas. Do you think that that's down to purely the fact that Donald Trump's in charge or is this something that was happening anyway and is now maybe been sped up or exacerbated by his style of diplomacy? I think that's a really interesting point. I mean, some people tend to think in cycles in terms of great power politics in particular. So some would argue that what you're seeing now is kind of um, uh, the face of decline shown more clearly. So you're kind of seeing a pushback at the idea of the UK, the US being a kind of moral leader and this seemingly being less important. I mean, I think some of the, the things that have happened a few years ago, maybe you wouldn't have seen Obama say those things. You wouldn't have seen so publicly um, these positions been taken. Now, more, more cynical people would argue, well, the power game has always been the only game in town, so mm-hmm. maybe there's less hypocrisy now yeah. in some respects. True. Um, um, but that, what that speaks to are these, you know, uh, someone's quite practical, I hate to speak these kind of more abstract, but these are unresolvable kind of philosophical questions about how the international system mm-hmm works. I'm one of those people who thinks in cycles in terms of international politics and I mean throughout history, throughout at least the last 1500 years, we always saw the rising importance of a specific power which then leads to a bandwagoning of Mm -hmm. other powers that aim at curtailing the excessive spread of uh, individual power in the international arena. So I completely agree with you on the side that this is not so much Trump's doing. This is a structural problem of current international politics. Now, the, the fact that Trump was elected to be the face that has to deal with this decline might be consequential to this, might be accidental. We actually don't know. What we know is that it's producing extremely interesting effects, at least on the narrative side of politics. And the narratives of politics with Donald Trump have, ch- have changed and have become much more more direct, more confused, mm-hmm. yes, but less political, less embedded in political jargon. In well, he ways. speaks directly to the people, doesn't he? Yeah. Through Twitter, he yeah. he addressed, which I guess some people will say is well, he got into power, so I guess a lot of people agree that that is what the president should do. He should 
answer people and talk to people directly. Whether he should be doing it 240 characters at a time is another issue. Well, I mean, the risk with doing this in, you know, in the way that Trump is doing this, of course, uh, being perceived as extremely superficial on uh, on very complicated debates. So recently he spoke about Jerusalem uh, mm-hmm. becoming uh, the future capital of Israel and yada, yada, yada. Of course, you in, in on Twitter, you don't have the space to expand upon those, those thoughts. Whether or not he has deeper thoughts on that is another matter. Uh, but there is the risk that diplomacy becomes a very superficial um, manner of doing politics. Too much so talking. And... And I guess there's kind of two ways of thinking about it. One is to see Twitter as this kind of new diplomatic form. And how seriously we take that, I'm not so sure. So this idea that, you know, the world leaders are watching Twitter is, of course, um, probably less convincing. Um, But at the same time, this idea that states, particularly a leader like Trump, who's popularist, can lead public mood very quickly in unpredictable ways, or at least get away with things in public, and which may be a long-term phrase there, um, kind of that does suggest a change in pace, and particularly that suggests that you know this could be taken seriously because it suggests that the, the leader has manoeuvring domestically. Um, the extent to which that's true, I'm I'm not yeah. so sure. I think if we look at Obama's presidency, while he did things, a common narrative he'd express was kind of limited the limited power he had mm-hmm. as a U.S. president. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think what has been a real boon for the media in particular has been he's so quotable, and has been the fact that. You know, sometimes he says things and then things happen. And then, yeah. you know, you could almost... I mean, the the strikes in Syria, you know, they were replaced by yeah. this kind of tweet, something's going to go down, and, you know, it's... Uh, and, of course, I mean, the, the other thing that we might be um, not inclined to admit so openly is that we seem to treat Trump or virtually any non-conventional leader in the West nowadays as if they were, you know, dropped from the clouds. Mm-hmm. But in actual reality, they are products of a system. I mean, it's not like Trump is an exogenous factor that was born, you know, on Mars and was imported in the U.S. In many ways, Trump is the face of a degenerated form of uh, liberal capitalism that prioritizes uh, money over morality, that prioritizes quick decisions over smart decisions, and so on and so forth. So I think that Trump gives us the opportunity to reflect, if we perceive Trump as being um, not the ideal leader, uh, it gives us the opportunity to reflect on the fallacies of the current system because whether we like that or not, these people are uh, produced by by the post-Cold War system. You mentioned Syria, uh, Brett, in your last answer, which is really good. Um, brings me nicely on to uh, the other topic I wanted to speak to you both about. Um, what First of all, what is happening with Syria? Because it seems to have, as far as I can see, slipped out of the news in favour of newer conflicts, some of which we've already mentioned. So just if you, if you can, bring us up to speed with what the situation is in Syria right now. Um, it's incredibly complicated. There's still a huge humanitarian catastrophe unfolding there, um, and that catastrophe um, also includes um, kind of, uh, refugees fleeing that region and, and struggling to find uh, places to, to live, and you have many camps in the region that have been established. Um, and I think what has been most telling about the Syrian war is perhaps it's one of the most documented 
wars in the world in which there has been most information available publicly and you have people reporting from the conflict zone on a daily basis. And yet the stories have been as simple as any war. Mm-hmm. And those stories have been maintained and established by, you know, maps maps relatively neatly along geopolitical leanings. You know, mm-hmm. pro-Assad, anti-Assad, um, kind of. And even though those things have shifted during the war, I think that's been most telling. I think it, it to me it's reasserted the idea that, you know, wars are complex phenomenon, and um, unfortunately, despite the kind of supposed democratisation of, of media, and even if we talk about the structural inequalities of how we are fed information through the systems we use, at the same time, with the press cycle and those sorts of things, it's still simple stories, and these simple mm. stories don't seem to reflect realities. Mm. I mean, we still talk about a war in Syria, when if we look on the ground, realities are lots of small localised conflicts um, involving multiple groups, ever-evolving, ever-changing. Um, peop- and this was, I guess, most when we're thinking about... Uh, when Trump came to power, people were saying about his view and his engagement in Syria. They were very simplistic views on what U.S. interests even were mm-hmm. in that region. I mean, we talk about U.S. interests, but from my position, these interests are often quite complicated. They're not. It's not a simple thing. It's you know. Yeah. Um, I think, obviously, Russia, Russia's um, decision to enter in two thousand and fifteen, uh, the West's decision to focus on fighting Islamic terrorism, as they put it. Um, in that period, has basically changed what the end game looks like, um, and I think that's becoming increasingly apparent now that it will not be Washington that dictates the future of Syria. Um, but at the same time, it, it never, to me, really looked like that Washington wanted to dictate, or at least they were willing to commit certain types of force, but they certainly weren't willing to get involved in a conflict in the same way they had done in Libya or or elsewhere. Mm-hmm. They. Um seems to be, I've heard a lot of people say that they consider Syria to be a proxy war now between the US and Russia and that any reasons that either side gave for going in initially were false and they basically said that Russia and the US wanted to have a go at each other. They can't obviously do that out in the open so one would arm Assad so as far as my understanding goes and one would arm the rebels and we'd see how the dust up goes and caught in the middle of that is an innocent populace what would you say to those sort of claims? Yeah, I mean I think that reflects a narrative that has dominated in, in, in the media in both the West and in, in Russia actually um, it's, that is quite Western centric mm-hmm. and I think that in, in a way kind of sums up the issue is the fact that this is a complex multi-level um, war there's regional dynamics which are far, um, probably more important than some of the international dynamics we've seen. Yeah. Um, I think, particularly looking at Security Council, the UN Security Council politics, every week or nearly every month at the moment, we see the US and Russia squaring up as these kind of moral leaders of the world, and kind of them the ones who are going to bring peace to the region, you know, big words, nice phrases. Mm-hmm. Or at the same time, you also see this kind of presentation of this dilemma, this idea that. Well, both Russia and the US want peace, but it's unworkable. And in a way, that seems to justify that seems to justify inaction, right? That seems to be a yeah. way of kind of saying, well, we've got this unworkable, impossible dilemma because we both have this disagreement. Mm-hmm. At a more fundamental level, that's reasserting the dominance of those states in how we make sense of that war. And I think um, what has been telling 
in recent years, it's been good to see has been like a general assembly. We've seen moves which have kind of tried to step back from this, this bilateralism of kind of, sorry, this, this sort of um, binary setup. Um, and you have seen, even despite a block security council, because of this setup, um, which I think has allowed um, the presentation of an enemy, so both those say, you know, Putin's the monster or the US yeah. the monster, has allowed both sides to kind of um, not perform the type of moral behaviours we'd want to see. Mm-hmm. The classic example would be chemical weapons. We know that chemical weapons have been happening. Everyone knows that these attacks have been happening. Yeah. We have had multiple investigations, one of which, the most, the most imp- the important one that was involved in attributing, has been closed down now in the Security Council. Regardless of whose fault that is, regardless of who closed it down, yeah. every state says that chemical weapons are a, a war crime, a crime against humanity. Mm-hmm. Every state agrees in public that the people who carry out those crimes should mm-hmm. be punished. But no one's been punished. Okay, so let's flip that over now mm-hmm. to our expert on international justice. Why? Why? Why is that the case? Why has no one been punished if we all know it's happening? And is this another example of what we were talking about a little bit earlier about diplomacy maybe being a little bit too superficial? Well, I mean, if we can go briefly back to a slightly earlier point, it's very interesting what has been said here, that there has been a oversimplification of narratives around Syria. And, you know, what hit the headlines of newspapers recently has been a return to Cold War dynamics, for instance. Um, that is a very easy, catchy portrayal of what's going on, but that also shifts the responsibility away from doing something in Syria, not doing something in regard of deciding who won between the US and Russia, which seems what um, Western media are currently doing, are currently focused in saying, oh, Russia blocked the Security Council referral on this, so Russia won, or the US has been bombing Syria, so the US won, so on and so forth. The shift has focused from protecting citizens, which was one of the core um, underpinning norms of the 2000s uh, with the responsibility to protect norm being implemented in 2005, to deciding, who, to deciding who won in this great power game. And this is a tragedy of contemporary politics. This means that oversimplifying war shifts away the responsibility towards civilians to a responsibility towards deciding who is the next superpower. And this is incredibly irresponsible. On the international justice side, Brett was mentioning chemical weapons and the fact that there has been a taboo against chemical weapons. What we saw was also an attempt to refer the Syrian situation to the International Criminal Court, an attempt that was blocked by two vetoes, China and Russia. Okay, What happened there was a... Um, outburst of rage from the West in claiming that China and Russia have behaved irresponsibly and once more we had an oversimplification of narratives uh, on both sides on both the Russian and Chinese and the US side because um, first of all what we have to consider is the fact that the US that has been pushing for this prosecution to happen actually was never part of the International Criminal Court so there is a degree, a dual standard and almost hypocritical standard there in claiming that other countries should be subject to this law, but the U.S. never ratified 
the Rome Statute, which is the underpinning document of the International Criminal Court. And this is what the Syria situation has also shown. Um, the other part is, of course, that some people are currently claiming that Russia and China upheld the United Nations Charter and the respect of national sovereignty. And by doing that, they made reference to the Libyan conflict. So when Libya was eventually, eventually turned in, you know, a... a, a operations, NATO operations, and so on and so forth in 2011. Mm -hmm. From 2011 until now, we didn't see a melioration of the Libyan situation. If anything, um, the internal chaos of Libya has kept increasing since 2011. Because there was a power vacuum, right? There was a power vacuum. We might give multiple explanations as to why the situation didn't get better. One was the lack of a clear exit strategy from Western powers. Mm -hmm. The other one that some people claiming is that you cannot build peace with bombs uh, and this is something that I agree with for yeah. instance um, but Russia and China have made reference to that situation to claim that they shouldn't replicate what happened in Libya in Syria and if the US was unable to provide an alternative to what happened in uh, Libya so an alternative action plan for foreign policy then that kind of criticism makes sense Okay, you don't want to have another Libya in Syria because Libya happened because of an oversimplification of the conflict, which is currently going on in Syria as well. I was going to say that sounds like what's happening in Syria. It sounds like what happens a lot of the times Western nations get on their high horse and decide to bring democracy to somewhere they deem not to have it. They, they go in and they try to, to quote one of our guests, <laughs> build peace with bombs and it never works. So... Is there a right way to go in and do this, or should we just not get involved in the first place? Million dollar question. Uh, yeah. I mean, to, to be a bit more pragmatic about these things, I think good things happen for bad reasons, and bad things happen for, for good reasons. And I think having followed uh, one narrow issue, um, you see very quickly that all states, it's very difficult to discern why a state does something. Are they doing it because they believe in something? And of course, states are people. You know, it's more complex than that. Mm -hmm. I think certain values and norms matter. Mm -hmm. I think the norm against chemical weapons matter. It matters that um, we, we discuss and we um, punish those who, who commit the grossest of war crimes. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time, it, it's clear that it's difficult to implement those policies. And, and in reality, that's all, those games around a specific issue are always part of bigger games. So... I mean, the classic example would be things like chemical weapons um, in relation to uh, Assad's role in dis chemical disarmament. Mm -hmm. So in 2013, we saw Syria agree to give up its chemical weapons stockpiles, and some have argued that that was good. And of course, it, it was good in the sense that um, it certainly um, re removed the vast, if not all, of the chemical weapons that Assad has access to in terms of um, uh, military, military um, stockpiles. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, People have argued, well, that's actually had impacts on his legitimacy in the UN system, and it's given him a voice. And that comes from a very specific uh, group of people with a view on, on him and the, the role of the international society. Mm -hmm. And that's the, the tragedy for me, is, is the complexity of, of the issues. Um, and so it's, yeah. 
Yeah, the other tragedy is what Brett was referring to is it's incredibly hard to discern the real reasons why states do certain things. Uh, many would argue that states are only motivated by self-interest. And another big tragedy of our time is seeing state interest coated with a human rights narrative. Okay. that justifies certain kind of policy action that then eventually diminishes the values of mm. those fundamental norms for international society. Because when you keep saying that you do something to protect human rights and after a while what comes up is that actually you were motivated by all sorts of interests and actually human rights was a very tangential part of your calculations, the worst backlash is on the notion of human rights themselves. Yeah. Like the war on terror, that sounds a lot like, like the, the war on terror. Like the war on terror, like the spread of democratization, which, I mean, here we must be, uh, we must be clear in not being... Um, what's the word, revisionists. There has been undoubtedly a melioration of uh, international conditions regarding certain issues if we take in consideration the long arch of history. There is no doubt about that. However, it's not said that that is an ending point. That is one of the other big fallacies of our times, perceiving that the immediate what is going on right now mm-hmm. is here to stay forever and cannot be ameliorated, right? Is the excessive presentism of contemporary politics, thinking that we are the zenith of time and there can be nothing better than this. So here we are not saying that we didn't see all the benefits that the American hegemony produced, because it produced certain and benefits is undoubtable. Uh, however, this is not an ending point and we must take the current dichotomies that plague uh, international politics to start thinking about meliorating certain kind of policy, policy actions. In this case, specifically what we call conflict resolution. It seems that we don't still have a good grip on how to help uh, states in solving their own conflicts. And I, I, mean, I, th- I mean, not to be kind of wide-eyed about this, but I think I mean, domestic accountability is very important. Yeah. And what I find the most troubling, particularly as I'm uh, almost medically addicted to Twitter, um, has been this issue of whataboutism and this horrible reality that it appears to be a, a first good response to accusations of inhumanity has been to point to the inhumanity of the enemy, which is not new. Yeah. Um, and it's 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 always been the case. I mean, chemical weapon use has always been denied initially, or has been uh, specific excuses have been made for its initial use. Um, but what's been most shocking, I think, is, is seeing it so blatantly. This idea that somehow you can avow uh, it's like double think almost. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I think that's that's problematic. And I think the other problem is the fact that we only have so much bandwidth as human beings. I mean, so there's so much suffering in the world. There is so many wars happening. Yeah. And unfortunately, even with our social media account, there's only so much attention. You can only have. care so much. There's only so many narratives we can understand as well. And I think you, you you see that most clearly, I think, when you hear these discussions and people do analysis who have looked at like major sporting events and the extent to which they've kind of um, lined up with military pushes, where you realise that these kind of media wars mm-hmm. are so important, the battle of the narratives. Well, there's a side note there. There's, um, I don't know if either of you seen the Netflix documentary Icarus about the Russian doping scandal. Yeah. 
um, I thought it was very, very tame and I thought it was amazing, but I didn't really realise the implications until I heard the filmmaker talking about, well, when Putin wins all those medals, he uses his 95% approval rating to stop the conflict in the Ukraine. And you think, oh wait, they are linked, and that narrative is in fact linked to something much bigger than itself. Mm. Again, as political scientists, we, we, we have to be careful about the causal links that are mm -hmm. made in a two hours long documentary. Of course, I'm not just saying. <laughs> no, 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 but many, but, many people, but many people, no, many I'm, people I, 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 I'm not questioning you, but mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, we use Twitter, we use snap interviews, it's very easy for us to say this happened, yeah. therefore that happened. There is no doubt that there is a correlation there and there is a sugar coating of many of these things. One thing that I wanted to add on, on what you were saying about the overload of, of information is that it exposes um, the, the hypocrisy of certain political paths. So international justice, which is my field, you know, relates to notions of impartiality, mm -hmm. of non-selection bias, of fair trial, and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So we've got the international community's eyes focused on Syria. But as Brett was saying before, we are also aware there are, that there are at least other 20 conflicts around the world, yeah. as bad as Syria, if not worse, that don't attract the same kind of attention, which means that there is a certain bias in the international community that decides to go in Syria instead of focusing on what's going on in Yemen or Sudan yeah. with the Darfur crisis, because they are less strategically important, because they hit the headlines of newspaper less, whatever the reason is, the overload of information, the entropy of information allows us to unveil mm -hmm. the partial side of justice, how partiality still matters in international proceedings. And that's the thing, I think I uh, betrayed a little of that innate way that people sort of think about it, say, well, I saw this documentary, <laughs> I think I've got a handle on the Ukraine crisis. Well, actually, no, it's that People like to think like that they know what's going on. It's why so many people believe in conspiracy theories, because people mm -hmm. like to think, oh, well, actually, it wasn't this really complex thing. It was this one simple thing here, and I can explain it and, thusly. And, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's really true. I think it also relates to how we think about other people's decision-making. So yeah. we, we often assume the enemy is this kind of overarching evil genius. Yeah. We often assume our own leaders it's are... a guy just like you, that's the thing, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Or bumbling. Or, you know, and yeah. I think that's, you know, I, I think that is kind of a natural innate behavior, but that's gamed, you know, that in yeah. the same way. At the same time, I think our desire to help um, can also be gamed in exactly the same way. I think our, What do you mean when you say gamed? So, what I mean is, is the fact that, you know, we, it, so this goes to the fact that this is like an old political debate about the idea of kind of rationality versus emotivism and those sorts of things, and this idea that we only have temporary attention span we only have temporary emotional engagement mm -hmm. and so we, we try and do things when we can do things and we see key moments at which we can we can act and this is all goes around to the about humanitarian intervention and, and what drives yeah. states and why people support these sorts of things yeah. and the extent to which those don't necessarily end up with the consequences that you initially try and involve yourself with um or even even on the same line, even the feasibility of action means uh, means something in this context. So when you speak about humanitarian intervention, international justice, most most strategies also evolve around the kind of things that you can do, mm 
So when we were speaking about leaders, right, mm-hmm. uh, and the fact that we seem to think that there is an overarching evil genius behind all the evils in the world, that yeah. speaks about the fact that what we are trying to say with international justice proceedings and with the narratives around Assad is that, hey, you remove Assad mm. or you keep Assad in place and all Syrian problems would be solved, right? We repeated that mistake with uh, Muammar Gaddafi, mm-hmm. with Saddam Hussein with Osama bin Laden, in which the removal of a single individual was thought as a panacea of all evils in the world. People Why? like to have a target. People like easy solution to uh, solutions to very difficult problems. Mm. Uh, one easy solution is to try and remove one single person instead of changing the framework of a society, instead of facilitating a very long peace process. Why? Because peace processes don't hit the headlines of newspapers as much as saying we quote Saddam Hussein. Yeah. You know? So that is another danger of overt individualism, thinking that all evil and all good. So you've got the overarching enemy on one side that if you remove him, everything will be solved. Or you're waiting for the next Messiah, the next Deus Ex Machina, that will solve all the problems problems in the world. And that removes agency from from citizens. And then the next step is cynicism. So then mm-hmm. you... Well, it will never change, so what's the point? Yeah. If Obama couldn't change it, nobody will, uh, yeah. will be able to. Yeah. If removing Gaddafi didn't change it, you know that these cannot be changed. Do you think that's the uh, that's the thoughts that goes through these people that make these military decisions? They go in, they take out the bad guy, massive air quotes, and then oh wait, nothing fixes itself. Well, we don't really know what to do now. We don't have we made it worse. Well, we can't say that because we won't be able to stay in power. So we better just go. Well, I, I think there are very few simple problems. Most common problems now you think at the international level are, are complex, and that's because of the speed, it's because of the relational interrelatedness of the regional, particularly, so look at the Syria conflict, that is tightly embedded in regional and international level conflicts. At the same time, there's also subnational mm-hmm. conflicts. And other, some people even argue that the categorizations I've just used there are very misleading. Yeah. The fact that you know, how, we understand, how we understand the state is very Western, and so... And so on. Of course, they're totally different societies, aren't they? And so I think that is a major issue, is this complexity. Um, but at the same time, I think our intuitive approach to thinking about these problems as individuals, and I think this is why often the public in particular um, are so frustrated with dominant narratives. I think this is also why conspiracy theories are, which mm-hmm. are, are so prevalent today. And interesting. And interesting is, is because we're essentially, our minds are still Stone Age. Yeah. And we still have the same types of habits and thought processes that we kind of have always employed mm-hmm. to make sense of things, stories about causation. We're mongers, we're still, bad guys. really. We're still apes. And, and very pragmatically also, if you set yourself an achievable goal, you could go to you know, your boss and say, I did what I was supposed to do, which was take out a single individual. If you go out and say that your policy plan for Syria is uh, to solve the Syrian conflict in 10 years, that might be much harder to do. And here we are doing a great disservice to a number of international proceeding of conflict resolution processes that take place every day in remote countries of the world and try to solve conflicts on a more diplomatic social scale. Why are we doing this? Because they don't hit the headlines of newspapers again. Okay, so there, there, there are numerous people 
conflict resolution scholars, conflict resolution peacekeepers, and so on and so forth, that are doing a great, great job without making the headlines of newspapers. Because well, the biting isn't sexy. Because the process is much longer, because the topic is less sexy, because maybe they are working not on Syria but on Sudan. Mm-hmm. Or the Yemen. On Yemen, or Thailand, or whatever that is. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, uh, it's much harder and I, I for them to get the same kind of publicity than bombing. And I think that points to the idea of when we do see a failure, obviously, you know, it's too early to tell um, who's lied, who hasn't been lying, particularly the Syria conflict on some issues. Yeah. And I think, so rather than accepting the fact when of finger-pointing, which obviously, you know, states do bad things, um, there should be a demand from Western publics to say, well, that's not good enough. I mean, that, that, okay, what's the, what's the, what's, what can we do? What can be done? Mm-hmm. Um, for, so, for example... Um, take chemical weapon issues, okay? There's been a lot of progress on that in terms of destruction, um, allegations of ongoing use against both sides, well, multiple parties, I mean. And, you know, this, this week we saw at the Chemical Weapon Convention, of colleagues of mine, they were saying, well, okay, health. So there's, there's victims on the ground right now, yeah. many areas which are occupied, and so there's no, there's no healthcare provision. What are the international community doing to ensure that a real non-contentious problem. That should be an issue where there is the healthcare. And that's just on one narrow, art, in some respects, artificially narrow problem space in a war which is much broader, yeah. there's a much broader humanitarian crisis. Mm-hmm. And I think that, in a way, kind of sums it up for me, this problem of particularism is the fact that very often we have to organise and respond to kind of these na- narrow, well-defined problems. And in the Syrian case, the frustrating has been, has been that in many areas even these narrow issues, yeah. we've not been able to separate them. From Can't even separate them, so to speak. Yeah. So where are they getting the chemical weapons then? The alleged uh, chemical weapons, I okay, think we so, have to say. Yeah, so in terms of the chemical... Second million dollar question. Yeah, so <laughs> chemical weapons, um, the, chemical, the Syrian regime has a very large chemical weapon programme. Mm-hmm. Um, but why, if they're illegal? Forgive me for asking yeah, so, like questions. So the chemical weapons were prohibited in, 19, in, the, in the 1990s. Um, uh, Syria denied having a chemical weapons program about 2011, um, mm-hmm. but everyone knew they, they had them. Um, mm-hmm. This was this is public record. Um, the attacks happened in August 2013. Um, uh, Syria denied they'd employed them. They accused uh, rebel groups of employing them. Uh, but before this point, the West and Russia had both said, we don't want Syria having chemical weapons, because they didn't know which way the war was going, yeah. and they didn't want these things being sold or stolen mm-hmm. and spreading to the Middle East. That stockpile existed primarily as a deterrent against Israel. Now, those stockpiles were destroyed, depending if you read the Russian or the US press, or, or, or if you look into more detailed declarations. Wall Street Journal Arati today. Yeah, mm. the vast, but the, we had an independent uh, verification oversight body went in. Um, there was a couple of issues with declarations, but either way, the vast majority of those chemical weapons, uh, traditional chemical weapons, nerve agents, mustard, Mm. Uh, were destroyed. However, there's been long-standing concerns about... Wink, wink. <laughs> well, the vast majority were destroyed. I mean, these are overseen by an independent body. Okay. However, there was a few issues with declarations, like um, small areas where they said, well, the government, we're not sure if the government's been entirely clear, but at that point, Russia and America were like, well, we just need the majority destroyed. So, mm. um, that's part of the reason that the OPSW won a Nobel Peace Prize. However, ongoing concerns about a small... Um, uh, stockpile being maintained by the Syrian regime, which it denies, 
And at the same time, there's also accusations that it's been employing chlorine in barrel bombs, um, which were not reportable to the OPCW because their chlorine is used for all sorts of things. Yeah. At the same time, Russia and, and Syria claim that rebels are getting hold or manufacturing mm-hmm. uh, nerve agents and so on. ISIS have also been using mustard, which we think um, they are manufacturing. That's a concern. Yep. Um, Not that it isn't all concerning, but I suppose if you're on this side of the fence, ISIS having mustard gas yeah. is a big concern. But And so you have these two stories. Again, yeah, again, two simple stories. Stories are you have Russia saying the regime has never employed chemical weapons. It had them, but never employed, has never employed them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only they they blame IS, IS and rebel certain rebel groups have used or, or, or somehow acquired and used nerve agent, including in Goose two thousand and thirteen. On the on the other side, you have the US who say um, uh, that only the regime and ISIS have employed mm-hmm. uh, the OPCW have agreed with them, and they've the OPCW have confirmed uh, both nerve agent and chlorine use by the regime, mm-hmm. as you might expect. Both Russia and China have said that the methodologies employed are flawed, that the OPCW has been kind of politicised and those sorts of things. And yet again, we get this problem. Mm. Regardless of, as you say, if you read Richard or the Washington Post, mm. it's, they've still happened. These attacks have still happened. Yeah. And even if we play, just take it back from the blame game for a moment about international diplomacy, it's unacceptable. But even on that issue... There are people dying. There, there are people dying. And some might say, well, the attention that these weapons issues have had has meant that, I mean, it really is, com- compared to other issues in that conflict, in humanitarian terms, it's really good they're gone, mm-hmm. and, but there's such a bigger, bigger war happening. Mm-hmm. But even on that narrow issue, even, and where states have spoken so kind of, um, in such grand terms about the importance of dealing with these weapons, mm-hmm. and they've both accepted these things have happened, and these have been used, I think, over hundreds, yeah. of, hundreds of times, neither side... We're in a situation where yeah. you have these ridiculous stories. We where can't even get we can't even get a clear narrative on whether they're actually being used. By no whom? matter, yeah, and by whom. No matter who's going to go in and yeah. help the people that they may or may yeah. not have been used on, and or uh, what kind yeah. of chemical weapon being used. That's another. And the question: Our best tool to do that was the joint investigation mechanism from the OPCW, mm-hmm. um, and that mechanism has been killed. And you can, I mean, it, it was Russia who, who put the bullet in its head. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but at the same time, the problem, they were, they were basically saying they were going to do that for, for years. They, mm-hmm. they, they said, you know, we're, we're, you can't be accusing our ally of doing this. You, you, you're, and then they questioned the methodology. And so when they reported their most recent findings of the, the Khan Shakun attacks in April, when they showed, their report showed that the regime had employed the agent, they said, well, as ever, the methodology is not right. It's wrong. You haven't proven this. And so instead they said, well, why should we keep this investigation alive if it's going to be... Yeah. And so I mean, I mean, the question we ask is, if we hadn't have had the US pushing on, on this issue, would we have had the progress through the OPCW? Sure. Mm. At the same time, Russia argued, well, if we hadn't had... Um, us arguing of the need to prosecute terrorists for chemical weapon use, we wouldn't have progress on that. And it's ridiculous. I mean, and yet again, it's a systemic issue of the fact that that apparent dilemma or like dichotomy between these two warring powers, a good and evil, depending on which side you're on, propagates inaction. In and all respects. the while, people are dying. Yeah. And that's the issue we that's the issue we're talking about. Yeah. And you know, so that, and that's the issue we're focusing on. Mm-hmm. The, the 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 very root 
of the reason why it was so hard to make chemical weapons illegal. It's actually in, in those systemic fallacies that Brett was referring to, because initially, uh, without going into the detail of different Geneva Conventions or, mm -hmm. or other conventions, um, most great powers pushed for the illegality mm -hmm. of chemical weapons, and what happened was an upsurge of, of lesser power that stated, well, if you're going to make chemical weapons illegal, you have to make nuclear weapons illegal, because chemical weapons are poor men's nuclear weapons. Of course, none of the great power wanted to get rid of their nuclear arsenals, and that already in the earliest stages of legislation against international and domestic use of chemical weapons raised so many doubts and so many difficulties in finding a clear-cut definition on the illegality of chemical weapons that plagued the issue until nowadays, for instance. I mean, I think this, for me, I mean, to be optimistic about it, I think this leads to a situation where you need to pick those moments where you've got a long lever on the future. And that means looking at it, it can often be the case where in war, these things, norms erode, pressures happen. It's worth remembering that even in the, the Second World War, the UK you know, came very close to employing chemical weapons. And, and there's evidence that those chemical weapons was used to employ uh, insurgencies by various states after the Second World War. But looking towards the future, I think it's important to take things off the table. And we have to have those debates. I mean, this is you're seeing now in relation to autonomous weapon systems. Yeah. Um, and you're seeing in relation to certain nuclear technologies this idea of, well, let's just not go there because we can't be trusted. You know, yeah. we, we can't... We know, judging at history, that while we make small areas of progress, temptation is, is always there in war. And I think that is important. And I think in relation to the Syrian question, that kind of is, is shown in, in this kind of very dramatic way. That norm enabled a substantial tool of murder to be removed from a state arsenal. But we haven't ended war. That still happens. Yeah. The question of whether it's made the situation better or worse is in the is abstract, um, but you know I think it's it's still important. I mean, like, I mean, I think it shows that if we're if we are forward looking, maybe maybe we can ensure certain practices and things aren't prevalent or available. You know, in twenty thirty years time. And um, what a good place to yeah. end the podcast, Doctor, Doctor. Thank you very much oh, for coming you. in. Um, like, listen, share, subscribe. This has been the University of Bath Thought Train. Thank you for listening.